The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. I don't want to give too long of a talk this morning. I thought maybe to leave a little more time for um, discussion and comments and questions. Some of you might know that a few weeks ago I broke my foot in a few places and uh, and it's, it's healing nicely, but I've been a little bit surprised at how long it's taken. I mean, f- according to me, <laughs> should have sh- should have been um, healed quicker. And so it's been about, I think, s- five weeks or six weeks or something, and, th- and, they, and they said, well, you know, six to eight weeks is uh, normal. Um, but it has been interesting to practice with this kind of physical difficulty and um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that, is related to that, um, practicing with the body, relating to the body, mindfulness of the body. It's, um, you know, in some ways, the most basic practice and the most simple practice that we offer here is to sit some degree of stillness and be present for our experience of the body in whatever the body feels like. We may feel um, sensations, pressure, weight, and something about the willingness to observe uh, what this body feels like from the inside is said to be very helpful, very healing, very transformative without reacting, without getting into a big story, just to sit and breathe, just to sit and and be a body. And we get to see how challenging actually that can be. It's a simple practice, but we can do it for about two seconds, (laughs) you know, and and then something comes up and something, you know, and we tend to have uh, what we call in a dharma language attachment to the body. You know, we, we have ideas about how we think the body should be or how we want it to be or how, you know, like I was saying, my foot should be better by now. I want it to be better by now. And, um, you know, so so we... We identify with the body, we attach to the body, um, we uh, want the body to be a certain way, to look a certain way, to feel a certain way. Um, And so this is one of our primary sources of suffering and clinging, you know, in 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 the Dharma perspective, our suffering, our extra stress or extra difficulty in life that's, that, that's not needed comes from our clinging, comes from somehow resisting how things are, wanting things to be different. Um, and so this primary source of attachment, primary source of suffering, is that being our relationship to the body. So sometimes we, we offer this teaching or you might have heard this thing, you are not your body. You know, this whole idea of like, um, who and what we are is not limited to um, this particular form and our particular ideas about this, this physical form. And that can be a radical idea to think, wow, you know, um, I've been so attached to this body and how it looks and how others see it and um, wanting it to be or feel a certain kind of way. And then to, to hear this teaching that you're not, you're not just this body. 
um, can be very opening, very freeing. Um, of course, in in with any with any declaration in Dharma, the opposite is also true, or maybe the opposite is more true. <laughs> Something you know. So we we can hold that teaching of we're not our bodies with maybe this other teaching which I want to offer or want to present for your reflection, which is the teaching of you are your body, you know. And just to hear how does that land, you are your body, I am my body. when I when I hear that, or when I when I reflect on those words, there's a little bit of a sort of no, <laughs> you know, kind of like um, I think that um, in one sense we're not our bodies, but then in another sense, what are we other than our bodies? What are we other than? the experience of this body in this moment. Um, And the reason I think this is a helpful side to bring in is that sometimes when we hear that you are not your body, it sets up this dichotomy or this split between what is spiritual and then what is the body, you know? Because um, this is a kind of I think in, in the history of religion and the history of spirituality, the body is lower. You know, there's something higher, there's something greater, there's something beyond. And this body, which has to eat, which has to poop, which has to do, it has sex, which has to, there's all these sort of low things, right? And then so, and that's not spiritual. What's spiritual is some, we don't know what it is, but it's beyond that. You know, it's something beyond, it's something... Uh, eternal and abstract and and this body is sort of a necessary inconvenience. Um, I remember when I uh, you know first having children and realizing that to care for this body is just a constant you know I mean it's not like <laughs> you know it's a, you know you know, it's like if you have electronics in your house or something, or something's not working, the, the computer or the internet, and you sort of fix it, or you get someone to fix it, and then it's like, okay, it's set. I open my computer, the Wi-Fi just works, or this just works. And a human body is like the opposite of that. It needs this constant attention, this constant care, this constant... And so if you have a baby or a child and the need to... You know, there's always something going on. There's always needs more food, or the diaper needs to be changed, or it's tired. He or she is tired, needs to sleep, or needs to. And new parents, it's like this. You know, is this just go on forever? You know, it's like it sort of does. <laughs> you know, until until the system and the person is capable of attending to herself or himself and taking care of himself. It's this continual uh, caring for, this continual, you know, feeding, sleeping, to the bathroom, all this stuff. So um, to hear who and what we are is this body can challenge our notions of what being spiritual is and it can, it can, it can bring to the surface how in some, in some ways, I think for many of us or most of us, how deeply unwilling we are to be a body. You know, a body is something that is, well, it requires this, this constant attention, this constant caring for, this constant um, calibrating. A body is vulnerable. A body is vulnerable to forces beyond our control. You know, um, bodies get sick. Bodies um, 
decay. We don't usually like to think of ourselves in, you know, in the way a piece of meat would be, you know, put out on a butcher block and, and, and sort of what happens to it over time. And um, so just to sort of sense into how deeply disturbing that can be or deeply challenging that can be to our sense of, of who and what we are. Um, I, about 10 years ago, I spent some time in a chaplaincy training program. And as part of that, I did an internship at a hospital in San Francisco. And um, I don't know how helpful it was for other people, for for me to be um, visiting with them and talking with them and sometimes meditating or sometimes praying. I like to think it was a little bit helpful, at least this just the sort of companionship or the, the, the to to offer to someone the sense of being listened to and and to and to deeply listen to someone. I think I think that's helpful. Um, but for me, what was very uh, transformative and what was very eye-opening was to see my own reactions and my own resistance and my own difficulties in being around the various states of bodies in all these kinds of difficulties and all these kinds of, you know, decays and difficulties and and challenges. And um, this, just to notice this very deep unpleasantness and unwillingness to sort of, I don't want to see that. I don't want to be with that. I don't want to acknowledge this whole aspect of being human. Um, it's not a rational thing. You know, it's, um, I think, at least what I realized for me, the, the mirroring of seeing the mortality of others and needing to uh, acknowledge my own mortality you know, you know, the difficulty of being this body, being a body. And, um, you know, was, was, was extremely, um, you know, in some ways it was very difficult, and in some ways it was very freeing. It was like, wow, okay. To finally be able to look at this huge area of being human, which had sort of, I'd been able to kind of, wall it off or kind of hide from it. Um, I always think it's interesting the way when someone dies and then we, we um, dress up the body, you know, and put on makeup and, and, and you know, and and in one sense, it's, it's, it's beautiful and there's an art to that and we kind of understand why because we want to see this person or this body in the way that we recognize them, right, as we remember them. I remember when my father passed away when I was uh, young, I was 13 years old, and to have that last viewing, it was a kind of strange, there was something familiar about it. But then there was also something like, this is not my father, this is like a body that's there and it sort of vaguely resembles this person but um, in some Asian cultures um, I'm most familiar with Japanese culture um, bodies when someone dies they're not usually buried but are cremated and and then to and I've been in, in Japan and here in um, I, I have actually haven't been to watch the body go in in Japan, but I have done that here. And it's quite a powerful experience to, to, to um, be accompanying or be chanting or be present when, uh, you know, one moment you're seeing this body and in the next moment there's a, f- you know, there's a fire. There's a, you know, and it, go, it goes in and there's a... Um, this process that happens and then what comes out at the other side are these ashes and then at least in Japanese culture what's common is to pick out 
some of the larger bones, you know, and um, the family does this. You know, so this is, this is like um, emotional, powerful, but it's like there's some sense of um, you can't not see it. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's almost like a, a ritual that brings a kind of closure or that brings a kind of reality that to be picking, taking the bones out of your loved one. And you're just kind of, I, you're just saying that, I can feel in myself that there's a kind of resistance to that. And um, so we have these rituals that can sometimes help us bring, you know, uh, acknowledge the, 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 the reality of, of the body, which is so difficult for us to acknowledge. Um, the other thing I was thinking about was this trend, supposedly among uh, teenagers, of um, you know because everything is online and everything is electronic, that for for teenagers, in a way, freedom is not so much defined anymore by having a car or having you know in America or something, you know when you get your driver's license. That's a kind of I remember being that's a kind of freedom because you can go you can you can go somewhere far away or, or farther than you could by walking or bicycling and but for for this generation of teenagers freedom they're not so interested in i mean this is a generalization and stereotype and all this stuff but not so interested in driving and maybe not so interested in even going other places you know Teenagers and young people live longer and longer with their parents. But freedom is having a phone or is having the internet and having this portal to this whole world that's, that's in the cloud or, you know, whatever, whatever that, you know, that, that's, you know, and it's, and teenagers socializing without ever leaving their bedroom. And being able to <laughs> chat and talk and be with friends and 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 it all is happening, you know, on the phone and texting and and what I don't know what exactly I think about that and I have a few more years to worry about that with my kids because they're only like five years old. But um, what it did, what I did think about it is how disembodied that can be. You know, we ju- you know, you just know how disembodying it can be to be sitting in front of a computer screen all day. And then what is that, you know, part of, I wonder if part of the payoff of having a virtual existence is we get to escape this messy physical existence, this physical, you know, that has drives and needs and is messy and is out of our control in a lot of ways but to be virtual i can create this whole fantasy world you know they even say that in the future we will have these virtual i don't know if those of us here but people some people will have these virtual identities and live in virtual communities and have virtual relationships and everything is being done in our heads, you know, and on screens and other people's heads. And um, in one way, this opens up a lot and clearly there are a lot of benefits to, to all of this, but what is the cost and what is it to, you know, to escape this body into being a body. Um, what does that do for mental health? Um, another thing I read was that in 25% of kindergartens in you know, California, wherever it was, I think it was in LA, the kindergarten teacher says there's no time anymore for unstructured play for children because they're too busy filling their heads with stuff, with skills, with reading, with numbers, with this, with that. 
And just to be a body and to play and to get messy and to be in the sand and the dirt, there's no time, you know, if there's no time for a kindergartner to do that, what hope does it have for the, for, you know, the rest of us, you know? And going in this direction, what does that do for our mental health, our well-being? Um, so part of practice and part of especially sitting practice is helping us return to being bodies and helping us return to the simplicity of being present with the sensations of the body, the experience of the body, in as simple a way as we can, without adding in complications. This knee pain, this breath, who and what I am, is just this breath right now, is just this body. and we get to see how difficult that is, actually, to, to, to do that for anything more than a few seconds. Um, part of what is transformative, you know, I think, in this sitting practice, is the request to be still, to be physically still. And we also get to see how challenging that is. Um, we very soon, in being still, we want to escape. We want to move. We want to do something. It could be, you know, I think as we practice more, the ways we try to escape get more subtle. (laughs) But, you know, when I was uh, doing uh, some intensive Zen practice, there's there's a strong emphasis on being very still physically. And the teacher is sitting out and watching the students. The students are facing the wall. The teacher's watching. The teacher can see when you move, when you fidget. So there's sort of more of a sort of pressure not to move. And what I noticed in myself is that the ways that I would move or want to move became more subtle. And in, in Zen, you know, often you sit like this with the fingers, you know, touching. And I would remember just at some point just wiggling my thumbs, <laughs> just needing to wiggle my thumbs. <laughs> it, was, it, was like, it wasn't going to help the pain in my back. It wasn't going to But there was some kind of release. There was some kind of escape of just to wiggle the thumbs. And it was like, <sighs> just to move. you know, it, it let a little of the steam out of the pressure cooker. And so one model of practice is that there is a value in as much as we can, not letting the steam out and just letting, letting that um, pressure in, in some way or another build up and really watching it, observing it without reacting. And in that non-reactivity, so in Vipassana practice, in mindfulness practice, we talk about non-reactive awareness. Developing this ability to observe what's difficult, observe what's unpleasant, without reacting from a place of stillness. And this is really what is healing. This is really what is transformative. Of course we react. Of course we want to react. Of course, this is our human conditioning. And... Um, but if all we know is that conditioning, then we are controlled by it. You know, then we're at the mercy of our conditioning. We're at the mercy of spending our whole life trying to get comfortable, trying to wiggle our thumbs, you know, in all the different ways that we wiggle our thumbs in our life. And so what is it to, little by little, become okay with the physical discomfort, the emotional discomfort, and to find some way to sit still in the middle of it, um, this is actually what's freeing, what can become freeing for us. Um, So this willingness to be a body um, is 
a way of bringing spirituality into the messiness of our life and to see that my need to be fed, to be nourished, to be, to take care of this body, uh, to be touched, to be, to have that kind of human warmth um, is not something that's unspiritual, but actually to acknowledge our interdependence, to acknowledge our vulnerability, to acknowledge our dependency is the deepest spiritual truth. What did the Buddha teach? Impermanence, interdependence, you know? That's to see, you know, it's not like there's something beyond, there's some essence beyond this body. And if I can only quiet this body, shut this body up for enough time to really see this true spiritual essence, which is behind, beneath, underneath this body. I think that's not what the Buddha is saying. The Buddha is saying is, the essence of this body is the essence of the Dharma, which is impermanent, which is interdependent, which is um, happening here and now, which is immediate which is um, able to be seen. It's not hiding somewhere else. You know, so the old masters say, nothing in the universe is hidden. You know, where could it be hiding? Where could our true self be hiding? Um, So when we're experiencing the body, when we're experiencing um, some thought or some emotion, who and what we are is just that is just that sensation, is just that knee pain, is just that emotion. And to let our resistance to the moment fall away is to uh, discover something maybe that's always been there, but in, in our clinging, in our uh, you know, self-centered ideas, we miss it. You know, so um, to be to be a body, the willingness to be, the willingness to simply be a body, um, is is really great practice. Is really deep practice, um, and then to look at all the ways that we resist that, all the ways that we uh, find that somehow there has to be more than being this body, somehow waiting for something else, or waiting for something, um, you know, to check that out, check out that assumption. And so just to return, over and over we return um, to our experience of the moment and uh, allow, open, allow, accept. Um, so, You know, one other, one other, um, it talks a little bit about stillness and, no, and just exploring our relationship with stillness. When is it difficult to be still? That impulse to move, that impulse to, you know, it might be to just, you know, to get up and check my email. But it might be this, just this, we're becoming so still and so quiet that it almost feels a little scary or it feels a little disorienting. And so at that point, there's this impulse to shift, to wiggle, to squirm. And it's like, it's almost like, do I still, am I still here? Oh yeah, I'm still here. You know, and you kind of feel the, the familiar, familiarness of, of, of of, of an intentional action. So to, just to notice that and just to notice what, what it, would it be even for 10 seconds or for five seconds or for two seconds to be so still, letting go of even intention, letting go of, 
um, any kind of um, me that wants to confirm itself. You know, so, so stillness. The other place that I find is very helpful to check in is in the belly. In um, East Asian understanding, the center of the physical person is at the belly. The, you know, Japanese, the hara, the tanden, uh, dantian in Chinese. And not to get into all kinds of ideas about that, but we can notice whether the belly is soft, like a bag of water, or is it more like a kind of brick of ice? (laughs) Just to notice, you know, without any judgment, without anything. And periodically in our sitting or in our day, to just check in with the belly. What would it be to have a soft belly? Or what what would I need to soften mentally? What would I need to soften in my mind or let go of in my mind (sighs) to have a soft belly and to sink into the belly? Because often physical tension corresponds to a kind of mental clinging or mental tension. So just to notice physical tension, tension in the body, tension in the belly, and to see what would it, what would it, what would it mean to soften that? Um, what what um, fears might need to be let go of? You know, to have a soft belly is like a sign that things are okay. They may not be perfect, but they're okay. Things are safe. Things are safe enough. You know. For me, the tightness in the belly is a kind of bracing, bracing against life, bracing against uncertainty, you know. And, oh yeah, just to notice it, just to relax something. Um, So I just offer those for your reflection. You are not your body and you are your body, you know, and to, and to see which of those, um, which of those feels sounds right, which of those sounds not right, you know, I can't, um, and, um, and that something about Dharma practice comes back to this willingness to enter into the moment in whatever's happening in this moment and to really fully be that, you know, without resistance, without separation. Um, To be the breath, be the knee pain, be boredom, be frustration, be impatience. Um, And then just to notice what is What's blocking that? What makes it so difficult? What am I waiting for? You know, what's my picture of what's supposed to happen that whatever's happening in this moment can't quite be it. You know, there's something, there's something more. There's something beyond. Um, just to check, check that out. Check out that assumption. Um, so, uh, thank you very much for your kind attention and I wonder what you what you what do you think of all these words um, relationship to the body practicing with our with our physicality our 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 embodiment and all all of the messiness of that and Grab a mic. Yeah, it's on. Well, I know that in the <clears throat> high tech world, there's a sense that the health of software people is dependent upon also having good physical experiences. And this is why uh, Google and some other companies have in house massages, masseuses. And they have a saying which says, high tech needs high touch. 
Uh. That's uh, <laughs> so they're they're aware that there's needs to be some compensation for all this abstract thinking. I, I spend a modest amount of time on the internet, on my cell phone, but I think because it came to me late in life, uh, I'm probably relating to it a little differently than someone younger. But if I make a sociological observation rather than a spiritual one, but uh, two years ago uh, at Christmas time, I saw this movie on TV made in the 1930s. It's one of the old Andy Hardy movies, and their cabin gets snowbound in the winter, and Mrs. Hardy needs a doctor, and the phone lines are down. Then young Andy Hardy says, I've got a ham radio, and uh, I can call my friend who lives near the doctor, and he opens the hailing frequency and uh, his friend answers and then the doctor is able to come over and give Mrs. Hardy the medicine and then and re- this movie was made in the 1930s and then Judge Hardy says these young kids have really mastered this modern technology <laughs> so, so. that may be completely as novel as we think it is so yeah, thank you thank you That was such a lovely comment. (laughs) (laughs) So it's funny that I come here and hear the talk about the body because for the past two days I've been thinking about the body. And specifically what I've been thinking about, it just I made an observation for myself that the more unbalanced is my body, I have some food sensitivity, so if I eat the wrong thing, it just doesn't work. The stupidest thing that I do is when I'm out of balance. So basically the conclusion that I came to, that the way for me to advance my spiritual practice is to take care of the body first. Because Mm. then I'm able to sit down Mm. and Mm. meditate. Mm. Then I'm able to, when I'm talking to a person, actually look at a person. (laughs) And actually pay attention to what the person is saying. So yeah, that's... That's nice. a nice coincidence. Yeah, it's very nice, very nice. Thank you. You know, the the Buddha um, talked about the middle way, and one understanding of the middle way is the way between um, sort of extreme asceticism. You know, like punishing the body on one hand, and you know the body, and that's kind of what I was talking about. The body's not spiritual. The body's the problem, and you know so, and then the other extreme which is, um, you know, indulgence and, 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 a, and a kind of, um, I don't know if hedonism is the right word, but the word that's actually coming up for me, which I think is, you know, which may be in our modern society, we have the tendency to go the other way, is almost a little bit of a narcissistic preoccupation with, you know, um, and I mean, I'm as guilty of this as anyone, you know, like, which is the perfect diet, which is the perfect this, or the per- you know, it's like for, you're trying to be as, you know, my body is, is, is a temple that, you know, you know, so we can be obsessed that way too, you know, and so I like what you're saying, you know, it's like, so to find the middle way and um, take care of this body, and when we take care of the body and respect the body, then it becomes a vehicle for practice and a vehicle for awakening, and so, um, and just to, to, to check in, where am I in that spectrum? You know, am I, am I, am I, am I hating some part of my body, hating my um, physicality, my sexuality, my, my uh, appetites, my drive? Is there, is there something that's, is there kind of a self-hatred there? Or is there a sort of obsession, you know, and like, I, you know, um, you know, whatever, you know, unhealthy preoccupation with um, taking care of the body. And what does it mean to be in the middle of that and to really, you know, and, and respect the body and take care of the body um, and, and, and use it um, for um, waking up? I was actually also thinking, which is interesting, it touches upon what you just mentioned uh, about um, being in the middle between complete uh, austerity or indulging too much. I'm wondering if there are parallels between, you know, when we 
go on retreat, we try to be in the environment that it's not overly stimulating, so we can actually settle down. And I'm wondering if the same type of uh, relationship holds for the body. Like when you eat food, like there are certain foods that are more overstimulating. Like if you put sweets in front of me, it doesn't matter how many there are. I'll eat them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know if that's also part of it, of taking good care of the body, not overstimulating the body, and yet making sure that it's healthy. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I definitely, I mean, not... Part of mindfulness practice is noticing the effect of all the different inputs on, our, you, know, you know, the truth of interdependency, the truth of... Um, Interconnection means that what I take in, you know, whether, whether what I see, what I eat, affects the body, affects the energy, affects all these things. And then we can start to, you know, so part of the wisdom of being on re- meditation retreat is the environment is set up that's very simple and it's very um, conducive to um, turning inward. You know, so there's not a lot of stimulation. There's not like, you know, it's not like when you go into a pub and there's like, you know, TV is just on, right? You know, and it's like, you can't, you know, you kind of can't not hear it. You can't, uh, you know, there, there we, we are sep- secluded from our electronics. We're secluded from all that. So we can take that wisdom of interconnection into, into our kitchen. And so, you know, I was actually just thinking, um, wanting to drink less coffee and then I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I will <coughs> take the coffee machine off the counter and put it away. And not, you know, I, because there's something about like you're waking up and just like seeing it and smelling it. And then it's just right there. And then it's like, well, I guess we'll just have a cup of coffee. You know, it's a, and that is anything necessarily wrong with coffee, for instance. But if you have a, of a, um, an, an inspiration to change your life in some way. It's very, very helpful to see the environment as part of you. You know, I'm not separate from my kitchen. I'm not separate. So, so in the same way that I wouldn't walk around with a hat that has like coffee beans kind of just like dangling, you know, in front of me and just like, well, no, I'm not going to drink coffee. You know, it's like, it's everywhere. You know, it's just like constantly smelling it. You know, yeah, it can be very wise and very helpful same thing with sweets, same thing with something like that. You know, it's like we, in my house, we just don't buy stuff. We, you know, we just don't take, bring it in the house if it's not something that we're not, um, that we don't want to eat. We don't wanna. So, um, yeah, the environment, part of being a body is recognizing that we're not just a body. We're the environment. We're all these others, you know, and then what does that mean? What, you know, so... I uh, I appreciate the Zen flavored uh, vipassana talks a lot, <laughs> and uh, well, it's just it's interesting. My intuition was telling me that you were gonna like. I was wondering maybe it was just like my trying to like psychoanalyze you, but the fact that like you brought up your father's passing like for whatever reason i was like thinking about that like psychoanalyzing you on my way to like this dharma talk so it was like interesting um but that's like it's like a part of your psychology i think in some ways um but we don't have to talk about that um but uh i guess i guess for me um couple things came to mind um, number one um, just like I heard a talk um, on retreat a couple years ago and they said still flowing water because um, for me sometimes when I when I'm still sometimes I get like too stiff and stuck and mm-hmm. so um, I think uh, just reminding like myself to keep it flowing can help mm-hmm. Um, and then what was the other thing I was going to mention? Oh, yeah. It's one thing that I, I struggle with in this tradition, um, 
is you know, the what is it uh, not the non-identification like like you are not this you are not that and I find that can be helpful but sometimes I it it can be leading to a form of bypassing where I think you might have mentioned that just where I'm not acknowledging certain elements of myself um, and also. I kind of like the meta. I like to do metaphysical speculation because for me, I feel like I'm a part of something larger, like a oneness or something. I know that's a part of Zen because um, the Taoist influence, but maybe not Vipassana as much. Um, I feel, I feel like it. There, there's like a shift or an integration in my mind. So for me, like, I kind of I like to, like maybe maybe like it's not a skeptic thing or not a pragmatic Buddhist thing, part of that belief system, but I kind of, I kind of like to fold in some of the metaphysical beliefs and, and contemplate, um, part of being something larger because I feel like it can, um, connect me. And I mean, I guess there is, you mentioned interconnectedness and, um, I guess the idea that everything's dependent on everything else, but I guess, those teachings don't always resonate as much for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, um, just to say one thing about the stillness and the movement is it's a great um, time to wake up. <laughs> you know, um, that's a great thing to remember is that stillness is not stiffness. Stillness is not uh, tightness. And in a way, stillness is like the ultimate non-reactivity. So when we're really still, it includes movement, (laughs) actually. And movement includes stillness. And so when we sit, there's this sort of intention to be still. But, you know, of course, the heart is pumping, we're breathing, and there's movement that's happening. And so it's, it's, a, it's a sort of, what, is it, what would it mean to be still right now in the midst of this movement, in the midst of this flow? So, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Thanks for um, really stimulating this topic. Um, it is and asking for reflections. It made me um, because your your talk really um, turned on some um, speculation and thinking uh, that in me, and um, especially the question: Are you a body or are you not a body? And it made me um, go into kind of a fourfold logic that I've been doing lately. Yes, I, I am a body or I'm not a body. Um, I'm both a body and not a body. I am neither a body nor not a body. And that um, made me think of, so I'm really old, um, when I was in college, I was just kind of going on my Mary Way in the material world, and Timothy Leary came to the school in the 60s. And he kind of cracked open my mind. I had never experienced drugs. But he um, said, there is not a chair here. It's just energy. And he kind of went on in that theme. And um, so it occurred to me while we were sitting here, and you were talking, and it um, stimulated a uh, contemplation that I was doing yesterday uh, about the body, that um, the body is constantly changing, and I thought um, about cells that are constantly doing their work, and um, the molecular structure of the cells and everything is constantly changing and everything is interdependent because everything is um, in a process of respiration and exchange of uh, 
energy in the world. So it um, was it's kind of your talk has really opened up that realm uh, to me of uh, that the body is very in interdependent and um, it just gave me that perspective. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Hi. Um, it's a rich topic, and um, I too think both are true and both are not true. Um, but to me, to say I'm not a body feels much more hopeful because then there's just so much else. And um, and also, what I always think of when this conversation comes up is a, a dead body because it's so obvious. Like even if the body's there, it's like that was always my response. Where'd he go? You know, where is she? And um, and people with dementia, when, when I've mm -hmm. been really close to them, um, because there's a part of them still there. But I know some people will talk about someone they love with Alzheimer's and say, well, he's totally gone. I don't even bother going to see him. And, you know, my first thought is we're not just the body. You know, there's mm -hmm. more there. Um, mm -hmm. So that, but then to think that we are a body. Um, sometimes it can lead us to take better care of our body and to take more responsibility in a way, I think. Um, but also it can be used to feed the ego too. So there's benefits and drawbacks to both in my mind. And um, I, I think I've been thinking about the body a lot because just in the last 10 years, mine's changed so much and I was very... Mm oriented towards physicality and athletic things and I was um, very coordinated and strong and just the depth of what I can't do now that I could do 10 years ago and how much work I can do and the sports I can do is you know totally changed and even um, there was there's something called a night ministry and people that do this work at night in San Francisco and I thought you know that sounds kind of cool and am I brave enough and I thought wait a minute I can't even drive at night anymore <laughs> I'm not sure how this will work so um, it's it's a big adjustment and but I'm glad this is here and what it does in a way is it I was thinking would I be here as much and as interested in meditation and spiritual activities if, if my body was still working perfectly and I could still do all that other stuff I used to do to kind of entertain myself and yeah so I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure but but it also in a way it, there's a a form of mindfulness to that to sports like when you're when you're in that zone it's like it's right in the moment but it doesn't always happen which always intrigued me it's like I could feel it more in practice than if there was a competition because mm -hmm. I would I guess my nerves or the ego so yeah. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. It's, you know, I think for um, for me, you are not your body. Is um, you are not your body, and you are your body, are two slightly different ways of saying the same thing. You know, and that. Um, the body is a place where we, where imper the truth of impermanence is really rubbed in our noses. <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, we can't quite, you know, we can't. Okay, yeah, the seasons change, and but you know, when we see our body changing, and it's like you can't quite ignore it. Right? We can try, um, but something about um, the, for me, it's like the. The only way beyond impermanence is to not resist impermanence. You know, if, if that, you know, so like you are not your body is kind of um, what is beyond this, this sort of, you know, changing, uh, unreliable nature of things. And you are your body is a profound 
non-resistance to my own impermanence? You know, what would it be to be profoundly not fighting the impermanence of the body? And, you know, so one of the things that comes up for me is this idea of like a, a beautiful death. You know, someone who has lived their life and maybe has some, um, you know, maybe is in advanced years or not, but have some, some kind of deep peace with their own mortality. And, um, and I've seen a few people transition like that and die like that. And, it, and it's, it's quite an amazing thing to be, I've, I've known someone who was very ready to go. Her body was sort of fine. She was in her 90s, but she was done. And it wasn't like a kind of, you know, depressed. She was just kind of like, this feels finished. And, and you know, and there can be that too. And the, but it was like very interesting to me rather than this resistance and... Um, this shouldn't be happening. It's like, no, this is exactly what should be happening. And so that's, that it can take that form sometimes. Um, so I, I don't know. For me, they, you know, maybe there's some way that these come together. That, um, um, yeah, and that, that, that the, the place where practice takes us is, is not so much beyond impermanence, but beyond our, um, or, or maybe I would say a, a deep peace with whatever is, whatever arises. Okay, yeah, maybe one more. Um. In it all being one, it it um, it's hard to imagine the miracle or the mystery or the joy without creation and what we're living and how we're living and the fact that we live at all. And I was I was tripping out the other day on that, you know. Death is for sure. We just never know what's going to be reborn, right? Like the real permanent, thing, the real known thing yeah. is death. Okay. Creation is still a mystery. <laughs> Where we come from, or how that happens, in a sense. But so I'm just endlessly fascinated by death and the the reality that it gives to life. But the other inquiry is on well-being and um, it, experiencing the aging body or sickness. Or um, w- what is well-being when I'm when I'm it clearly? If I take care of the temple of my body, I experience more well-being. Life. I've had profound just for some reason no sleep for a couple or not much enough sleep and just the felt sense of life well rested versus not well rested and the the joy that's available or the well-being right and yet there's this other element of awareness that can be present is, is completely unaffected by that and can be aware of right so it's all um so it's very curious to me. Uh, the inquiry is just about what is well-being and how do I experience that and under what conditions and is there well-being when my body isn't mm. well? Yeah, no, it's a, great, it's a great question. And as I think as people who are practicing in the world, in our home life, in, you know, often in monasteries... Um, you know, I remember having this conversation with people so many times, different, living in different practice places. I mean, like, you're sleep deprived, it's cold, or it's too hot, or it's, you know, it's like the conditions are purposefully tweaked to give some suffering to work with, <laughs> you know. And one of the ways that I think lay life, householder life, is 
a more challenging place to practice. And in some ways, I don't want to say more advanced or less advanced or something, but it's quite an advanced practice because we have to learn how to make use of the suffering we do have. You know, so there's no enlightened master necessarily who's giving us little extra suffering to teach us a lesson. So we have to kind of make use of the suffering we do have in our life. And then, because we're managing everything, we have to see, is, is my, you know, in this question about well-being, what is, what's the line between taking care of myself and, and, and with a lot of wisdom and, and a lot of understanding of interconnection. If I don't sleep enough, then it's hard for me to be present. It's hard for me to be, you know, in a good mood and, and all these other things. Versus a sort of, you know, when does it go to the side of indulgence? When does it go to the side of, uh, you know, more of a neurotic, you know, I can't meditate without my pillow or, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's like my favorite pillow. And, you know, uh, and for, so I, th- I think for each of us, it's, it'll be different. And, um, but it's, I think just to ask the question is very, very helpful. They say, where, you know, okay, can I, can I um, stretch myself a little bit here? Um, and, and, yeah, anyway. One, one um, reflection that came up for me just now is on attachment. So if I'm clinging yeah. to my well-being, yeah. then I'm more hooked and yeah. looking for comfort everywhere. Yeah. To, that becomes my quest, right? Comfort versus awareness. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much, and thank you for your, your sharing. And hope your body has a good week. See you. <laughs>